Welcome to episode 41 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I'm your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Great, so this is our episode coming out December 27th, exactly between Christmas and New Year's, or in my case, between Yule and New Year's, or whatever holiday people celebrate and New Year's. Hmm. Whatever winter solstice original holiday you Happy celebrate. Happy holidays! <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone. The older I get, the more I really like holiday stuff. Decorating and silly holiday cheer things. I like holidays in my video games, too. Doesn't matter. Interesting, because the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, why am I still doing this? At the, the time of this recording, we're still waiting on our next child to be born. Yay, the new baby! We did the 40-week check-in and nothing, so... Now we're on a two-week, like, medical schedule, basically. So at 41 weeks, we go in, and if there's still if she still hasn't had the baby at 41 weeks after the checkup, she's got to do an ultrasound to make sure the baby's still healthy. So apparently, they don't they just don't let you go past 42 weeks anymore yeah. unless you just say, like, I won't do it for any reason, because then the chances of issues goes up dramatically. Mm-hmm. So we're very tired here and working very hard to try and get everything squared away. And so if I sound a little bit worn down, you can understand why I hope. So we actually tried, well, not tried, we did record a holiday episode in time for December 6th release originally. And then when I went back and listened to the episode, we ended up finding something that I think is really interesting that I wanted to talk about. But because we sort of stumbled over it during the episode, it just sounded like a long episode of me telling people to lie to people. (laughs) which is not really my jam. (laughs) I I thought about that. Yeah, when we were recording, I tried to tell you the whole episode just sounded like you were just like, hey, here's your instructions on how to lie. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, we were doing a holiday episode. We were asking people what they want to see. And one of the things that people ask us about is what do you do when you can't tell your family? And that's a really interesting one because it frames a very difficult question, which is with a structure that you're engaging in ethical decision making in makes things that might normally not be ethical come out as being ethical in some way. Right. When lying is good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So this idea that there is a context in which lying is morally positive. The textbook for this is in deontology, which is the idea that an action is right or wrong, regardless of its consequences or context. The father of deontology, Kant, was once asked, should you always tell the truth, even if you know a bad outcome will result? And he said, yes. The specific example that he gave was, if you're at your house, and a bunch of assassins come and knock at the door, and they ask if your friend is there, and he is, you should tell them that he is, instead of lying and saying he's not there. That's a good friend right there. Yeah, it's a good friend, right? And uh, Kant's reasoning to me is also hilarious. It's like moral selfishness in a bizarre way, because his argument is because lying is immoral, if you say he's not there and then the assassins are like, okay, and they just leave. And then they see him sneaking out the back window because they left because you said he wasn't there. And then they kill him because that's a direct result of your unethical action. That's on you. Hmm. But if you said, yeah, he's here and they went inside and killed him, that would be their fault because they're assassins that kill people. And so they're bad, not you in that context. And I, and I know there's better newer arguments. So if you're a deontologist, I know you no one thinks that that's the case anymore. But I'm just talking about the context this sort of came out of. Presumably there are contexts then where lying is good. I need to add a framework element or I need to actually recall a framework element. In the second episode of the show, I also promised that I would do an infographic that I never did. So maybe I'll try and do that now that we're getting some support from donations about basically the the five levels of ethicality. I'm changing this a little bit for my own reasons, partly because one of the language elements is normally uses a morally blameworthy or morally praiseworthy. And you know how I feel about praise and blame. Mm -hmm. The idea is that there's basically five options for ethicality of an action. If you're looking at an action, it can either be a more ethically required action. So you have to do it in order to remain ethical. It can be an ethically forbidden action. So you cannot do it in order to remain ethical. And then you get into the gray area, which is normally called morally permissible. So morally permissible in the historical language is the entire range of gray area actions, which I subdivide into three separate sections for our purposes, which are personally desirable, meaning that you would give someone sort of moral praise, blame, high marks, whatever, for doing that thing. But it falls within a realm that you can't say they had to do it. It's just more something that you might think, okay, I think that's a good thing to do. Ethically neutral, where it has absolutely no ethical weight at all. And ethically undesirable, where 
you would negatively at someone doing it, but it isn't necessarily clearly ethically forbidden. So you can sort of understand why they might do that. So I'm going to give some examples of the this different options, if that makes sense. So something that is ethically required then would be honoring someone else's no. So you ask for permission to do something, someone says no, you must honor that no in order to be ethical, right? You have to honor their consent in that context mm -hmm. to be ethical. But then you might end up with something like, do you think people should donate to charities? And you might certainly say that it is nice if people donate to certain charities, but it's hardly a requirement that everyone donate to charities. In fact, a lot of people might not even have the be in the financial position to donate to charities all the time. And even if they are, you might not think that they have an ethical requirement, or you might think they can give back in other ways. So that falls into the space where obviously it's ethically allowed to give to charities. And in fact, probably you would call that personally desirable. You might think that a person is acting more ethically if they do give to charities, but certainly you wouldn't go after someone or attack someone for their lack of giving to charities. Ethically neutral is really simple. It's just an action that has no ethical content. So if I'm driving around like a two lane track, that's a closed track, it's not open to the public. It's just for me driving my car around. You would not say that there's ethical weight if I drive on the left side of the road or the right side of the road in this closed track scenario. Right. It just It, just, it isn't an ethical decision. It has, it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It just has no ethical weight at all. And then personally undesirable is something that isn't ethically forbidden, but is again, not particularly desirable by your ethical code, basically. The reason I put the personal area is the personal ones are the ones that basically we haven't decided on. It's the gray area we're always working inside of. Uh. It's very dependent upon the, the eye of the beholder, right? So for example, if someone parks in my parking lot, we have a no parking lot sign, no parking here sign, you'll be towed. And there are people here who feel very strongly that it is a ethically desirable decision to have people towed that they see parking there who aren't supposed to be there. I think that is cruel. I think that is predatory. I think it unfairly disadvantages minorities, partly because they're more likely to be noticed and partly because, you know, in North Carolina and well, everywhere in America, they're likely to have less money and therefore the cost to them is likely to be more crippling. Mm -hmm. It definitely is a problem for, it's very classist for sure. You know, if you have no money at all to barely pay your rent and your car gets towed, you're just screwed. Yeah. So, but the question is, there are people here who definitely think that that's desirable and that people here think that's undesirable and people here think that's eh, whatever. If you want to tow it, tow it. If you don't want to tow it, don't tow it. So that's all in that permissible space. And that's about the kind of decisions we make to aim at the kind of world that we think is our best world mm -hmm. that exists outside of the ethically required and the ethically forbidden, which are things that we have really strong evidence to say, no, there really is a right way to do this. I'm going to go with basically killing people for any reason other than self-defense is going to be ethically forbidden. Mm -hmm. For me, that's just clear, right? But that's not necessarily clear for everyone because a lot of people are for execution where the person's already been taken into custody. They're, it's no longer a self-defense situation. The action they did is already over. So you're not creating any good or preventing any harm by executing them. You're just taking vengeance on them, basically. And mm -hmm. some people think that vengeance is a good in of itself. There are a lot of people that think that things that are that I would normally that I would say, I think we have good evidence to say are ethically forbidden or ethically required are still ethical. So that's that isn't the way you can tell. It's not that everyone agrees. It's just that we have really good evidence for it. But there are certainly people that definitely think that that's okay. So just again, real quick in order, that's going to be ethically required, the most important things ethically, uh, personally desirable, ethically neutral, personally undesirable and ethically forbidden. So normally, I would say that lying all most all lying that doesn't result in major harms is going to fall into the personally undesirable category. I think that it aims away from the most healthy, best life that you can live. I think there's good evidence to think that. But I don't think that there's perfect evidence to think that. And I do think it's culturally contextual. As we said before, there there have been cultures where it's understood that there's a, an entire system for saying yes, you know, where you say, hey, do you want me to walk you home? It's cold outside. And the person's like, and, and the person's supposed to say no the first time because you are actually sort of lying about what you're willing to do. And it's all understood inside of the cultural fabric, you know, and mm -hmm. so then is that but then is that even really lying? Because that's how then you have to ask about how language works. Um, which is a still separate thing. We have to frame language and lying here in a minute. So we'll get back to that. But I guess we I guess we can do that. And we can put them together. So then the next question is, what is lying? And as a kid, for sure, I grew up with the mantra, a half truth is a whole lie uh -huh. myself. But I got attacked for yeah. that a lot by friends and family for being what they called uh, brutally honest. 
where they would say, you know, can't someone says, do I look nice in this dress? Can't you just say yes? So, well, no, they don't look nice in that dress. I don't I don't know why that would help them. You could say, well, nice is subjective. So how can I tell? As an adult, I could say that. But I think most people, if they said, do I look good in this dress? And you say, well, good is subjective. So I have no way to answer that question. They're going to know. Yeah, they're probably going to know. Yeah, they're going to be like, well, you hate um, it. Which actually, yeah. I developed a strategy and I think I've talked about this before somewhere that if you're going to be honest all the time, you should think long and hard about the kinds of questions you won't answer no matter what. And you should always stick with that. Because if you do that, then that won't happen to okay. you. Okay. So like, if, for example, you refuse yeah, to answer anyone's aesthetic preference question for any reason, and people are just used to that, then when they're asking a question that actually matters to them, and you're like, you know, I don't answer questions like that. They're like, oh, yeah, he doesn't answer questions like that. That is a very good strategy. I like that. So I never answer questions about like what my friends think, for instance, to anybody, because then you don't have this problem. Hey, does your friend hate me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't answer questions like that. What you always answer questions like that. You're constantly talking about what he thinks about things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, basically, if you're always normally, if you would answer the question, if it's positive, and then you suddenly won't answer the question, people just assume the negative. Yeah. And even if it wasn't, right. if like, if it's not part of your lifestyle to inform people that you're making choices about this, they're still going to assume the worst in that context. So they're going to say, oh, right. does your first friend hate me? Oh, I don't talk about what my friends think. That's the first I'm hearing of it, you know, so. Yeah. Sorry, I did a shrug there. That isn't a helpful way to communicate in the podcast. <laughs> and one of the things that I noticed recently while thinking about this topic, which was really sort of exciting for me, is that the question of whether or not a half-truth is a whole lie is the question of whether or not it matters if your lie is semantic or pragmatic. So to, to dip back into the linguistic philosophy we've talked about a couple of times, in language, the idea is that some of your content is semantic. Semantic semantic just means the definition. So definitions words actually have that are shared that we know. And some of the content is pragmatic, which means shared context and expectations. No sentence has enough or very few sentences have enough semantic context to actually tell you anything without an assumed shared pragmatic context. It looks like something like, I don't know, 80 to 90% of your language, of your discussions are actually pragmatic, not semantic. So the idea that you're only lying if you commit a semantic lie is a very self-serving way of hiding from yourself the fact that you're lying a lot. Which is, is interesting because in our culture, for sure, people get much madder about semantic lies in most contexts, I, I believe. I don't think that, I mean, obviously people don't, like if you're cheating on someone, they'll get mad at you. But they're mad that you're cheating, not so much that you're lying. But in general, if you say something to someone like, I can't go to the store because I broke my leg and you did yeah, not break your weird. leg, people are going to be much more mad at you than if you're like, I can't go to the store. I have a prior engagement or yeah, like that. And then your prior engagement is like you have to walk the dog like, <laughs> you, you know, nap schedule. you know, the people are much less likely to get mad about that or as mad about that as the direct semantic lie. That somehow in our culture, it's seen as worse mm -hmm. if you directly semantically lie to someone. But the way that we parse language, there is no difference. We, right. we take you at your word either way. I think what you're doing is you're hiding mm -hmm. in something that's just hard to determine, which is to say, a lot of times, we've also talked in this show how a lot of times people get mad at you when they think you've lied, and even though you have not lied, because there's been a pragmatic misunderstanding. So you meant to say yeah. something very clear, and they heard something different. And now they're mad at you that you didn't tell them the truth. And you go, well, that wasn't what I was trying to say. And because that pragmatic mix up is so possible, it's harder to get mad at people for it because you, you it's not as clear they did it on purpose. But it's really whether you did it on purpose. That's the ethical issue, if we're being honest. Yeah, the question there is what's false, right? So in a traditional sentence diagram, a sentence is only false if the sentence has if each of the truth conditions of the words, which is part of their semantic meaning is not met, huh. right? So you could have a sentence that's technically, semantically true, and yet pragmatically, it's intoning something that's false. And so I want to replace false with manipulating or misleading. So this is the, the term that I came up when we were talking about this last time is I want to call these manipulations. Because what you're really doing is you're using your language to, to manipulate the other person, to manipulate the other people in your situation. And we talked before about how language should not be seen as a communicative tool, but should actually be seen as a force in the world. That when you talk, it, it works on other people's brains in a direct way that changes their behavior and then acts upon the world. If you are trying to get an outcome and the way that you're getting that outcome is by leading people to a belief other than the truth, 
then that's what I want to call a manipulation. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of the dangers of the world that we live in and because of some of the ethical disagreements of the world that we live in, sometimes manipulations are necessary, sometimes yeah. even ethically required. If you know someone's trying to hurt someone, it is important that you don't help them hurt that person, even if it requires a manipulation. Right. That not all manipulation is negative or has negative effects. That sometimes, yeah, like you said, is necessary. So I think it is always undesirable to be in a situation where you have to use a manipulation. Yeah. And I think anytime you have to use a manipulation, you need to stop and do an ethical inventory and really look long and hard if, at it, if it is necessary, why it's necessary, and then decide like to what extent it's necessary. And then you need to look at how you can start removing yourself yeah. from the situation that makes it necessary. Yeah. And th that last one's not always possible. You know, so if you're living in World War Two era Germany, you may need to keep lying to the people that are running the country in order to stay ethical until whatever time that just stops being horrific. Right. And there's not really anything you can do about that. Right. Honestly. Yeah. Or, you know, the people on the Underground Railroad, I think it was important for them to do that kind of work. However, it's definitely not great. And I think most of the time, and it's not great, really, a lot of times it's just not great for you. It's very stressful. It is very unhealthy of behavior for people to engage in themselves. It puts them in a very unhappy, negative position. Lies are hard to keep up with. Yeah. Lies are hard to keep up with. Yeah. So, you know, split sides, you might say that takes too much time. I don't always have that much time. I think it's totally okay if you get caught and you get surprised and you have to use a manipulation, go for it, and then take the time when you have the time to think about it. And if you can, you can go back and say, hey, I was scared. I got caught in this space and I panicked and I said this, but that wasn't the case. It's actually this. And I'd like to talk to you about it. Or on review, you'll go, okay, no, I needed to do that. So specifically, the context we're going to look at here is during the holidays, if you have family that you are not out to, then how do you handle holiday requirements? Or since this is going to come out after the holidays, how do you how do you handle <laughs> family gatherings of any sort? Yeah, family gathering, mm -hmm. sure. How do you handle your New Year's party? Yeah. No, and I know this is going to come out after you've already navigated these particular holidays, but the holiday family gatherings are the lens to which we right. came to this question, is all I was saying. And so it's just easier to have one specific example. And it will be one that everyone has recently dealt with, so they'll yeah. at least be able to relate to it, I think. Everybody does this sometime because we all eventually run out of emotional energy. Even I sometimes don't bother pointing out to people that I've just met immediately how polyamorous I am if they're clearly strongly against it. Yeah. Because I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't need this right now. Yeah. Like I was talking to a, a client the other day about the, the book that I'm writing. And I was talking about how it was about sexual ethics through the lens of non-monogamy. And they're an older client. And they were like, oh, well, everyone that I know who's in a non-monogamous relation, an open relationship, their only lens for that was open relationships from like the 70s era, I think, is no longer together. And I was like, oh, well... I'm using that lens because it's the most critical and therefore the most helpful for investigating relationships from the ground up rather than using a lot of assumptions, which is actually the primary reason that I'm using it. But the reason that I learned about that lens is because I am non-monogamous. Mm -hmm. And I, I stopped short of saying, but the reason right. that I know about that lens is because I'm non-monogamous because I was like, I don't want a two hour conversation where this person tries to save my marriage when I'm here yeah. just to like paint a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to start witnessing to you. Right. And sometimes I do, you know, want that conversation. And sometimes I don't want that conversation. I've gone mm -hmm. both ways. You know, I knew that saying those sets, those words was leading them to assume that this did not apply to me. Right. You know, it didn't force them to do that. It wasn't a direct semantic lie. If later, like, I really am X, Y, or Z. And by the way, for your relationships, even though I don't think it's morally different, I do think, or ethically different, I do think it is better for you if you can avoid the semantic lies, because if you have to repair those bridges later, yeah. it's a lot easier in our culture to say, oh, I just didn't tell you, than it is to say, I bald face lied to your face. Yeah. We've also talked about, about how <laughs> there's so many different things we have to pull in to make this make sense about how relationships are about connecting authentically with people. It's part of the reason that we're polyamorous in the first place. We don't think that there should be these boundaries on the forms of authentic connections we make with people yeah. that curtail our ability to be ourselves around them. And so when you start engaging in these familial social relationships in an inauthentic way, the person that you're really, I mean, you're harming yourself. And you're also denying the person that you're dealing with 
consent as to whether or not they want to be in a relationship with whoever you actually are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're in a scenario where you have no choice and you telling them would put you and your family in jeopardy, you have to. So if you're going to a Christmas party and your firm is really conservative and you'd lose your job and be blackballed, right? then, I mean, you're not going to come right. out. You can't. And that's, in a, I mean, you know, it's, it's sad and it's on them. But I do think in that scenario, you should be looking for a plan. Even if that plan is like, we did this in the coming out episode, we said this too, but even if that plan is like a 10 year plan to get to a job where you can come out if you wanted to. Yeah. Not that you have to, but a place where if you did, it'd be like, meh. Wouldn't be detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think the same thing with your family. Like, if you can, you want to get to a place where your family cannot harm you, basically. You know, so obviously, if your family's paying your rent, helping you go to college, supporting you, you still live at home. Many, many, many other dangerous situations. You know, you think your family's violent, that sort of thing. Don't start being super honest with them Yeah. on that account. But I think you should be trying to get to a place where you can be honest with the people who are, are in your life. What if what your family knows doesn't really matter to you? Well, that is why this falls into the gray zone, right? The, you know, an ethics podcast to me, yeah, sure. Sometimes we talk about what you have to do and what you can't do. It's all gray, really. <laughs> yeah, 99% yeah. of the time we're talking about gray because... You know, people have a decent handle on what you can't do and what you have to do. What people don't have is a, a good handle on how to make decisions about the gray mm -hmm. that will lead to the kind of life that they can be proud of and that other people will feel good about. So when we give advice inside of the gray area, we have a very specific lens that we talked about. That lens is whether or not your behaviors are healthy or unhealthy for you and the people around you and whether or not they're social or pro-social. I'm sorry, pro-social or anti-social in the sense of benefiting the group or benefiting or, or harming the group. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't matter to you whether the people around you know who you really are, I think that that's an antisocial behavior. And I think that that is a unhealthy behavior. And if those things don't matter to you, then I don't have a lot of argument left. If those are not relevant levers. Yeah. But there is still another subcategory, which is, of course, you talk about people who have... I think, you know, they use a lot of terms like spoonies these days, you know, talk about people who have neurodivergences and other mid uh, energy contingencies that wouldn't allow them to overcome some of these obstacles, mm -hmm. but also don't allow them to feel comfortable telling the truth to some of these people. And if you're in that camp, then that's what you have to do. It's that same thing. It's a different type of threat at that point, right? It's a threat to your mental well-being, your mental health, your ability to cope. And so that's a choice only you can make for yourself. If you're like, I need my parents in my life because... That's just part of who I am, but I can never be honest with them because I just don't have the emotional energy to ever get to a place where I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then it is what it is. Yeah. But I think you owe it to yourself to investigate that as much as you can, like to go to counseling, ask the counselors to give you tools and tips and how, you know, to try and do it, basically. Mm -hmm. And if you find out you can't, well, then the other thing is now you have peace of mind because you know that you can't. Yeah. You're like, all right, well, I can never be honest with that person. I did everything right. I could. You know that you've tried. Yeah, because right, because you can't do more than everything that you can do, right? Like once you've done every, tried everything that you are capable of right. with inside of the what you're healthily, mentally, physically capable of doing, you don't owe anyone any more than that. You can't owe anyone any more than that. That's impossible. And for me, that's a lot of right. what I end up, you know, a lot of what I feel like you do to, to be, to feel good about yourself in the morning is you go, I tried. I did everything that I could have done that was reasonable and plausible and possible to make this as good as it could have been. Right. Those are the long-term things, right? So long-term, you're trying to get out of that situation. Long-term, you're trying to resolve it. I go back to Mandy's point just for a minute to talk about like, what about people that don't care about if they're going to be honest with their, their family? I think that in my family, that was an early sort of response, right? I think you guys remember the, the my parents, I told you that my mom was like, well, okay, mm -hmm. just don't post it anywhere or tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was great, honestly, because I think it kept this tension and this sense of sort of like she felt like her, you know, family would look down on her if they found out that I don't think was particularly good for her. And I don't think that she's just come out and told everybody but i mean i've been doing a polyamorous podcast for two years and <laughs> it's not exactly super secret and yeah. all the posts on my page like my personal page are like look at these cool lgbtqia pins <laughs> and uh and poly this <laughs> and poly that so and yeah and my partner uh, always posts about different poly things and I think she even has her status that she's in an open relationship that sort of thing so I, I have a hard time believing that the family hasn't 
figured that out at this point. Um, this is a side note. I missed the update to the LGBTQ, the IA. What do those two mean? Okay. Intersex and asexual. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's it. That's all and I needed. Pluses I, I don't... and others. Yeah, I, I didn't remember. Yeah, plus as the other. I just, um, the last I heard of it, except with the conversations with you two, um, it was still LGBTQ plus. And so just wanted to know what I was missing. <laughs> you know, I think there was a certain point where my mom sort of eventually broke down and told one of her sisters and they were like, oh, one of my kids is polyamorous. Interesting. <laughs> and they'd never talked about it, you know. <laughs> And I think it was better. I, I had a, there's a great thing with my grandma where uh, one of my cousins became one of the leading people in legal marijuana as that was coming up in Washington State. Oh, cool! And nobody wanted to tell nobody wanted to tell grandma. <laughs> Don't tell grandma. They, they were all worried that she would be really upset about it. You know Don't that how, how is how is my grandson selling drugs? You know, and so we eventually told her. I forget how or why I was there the, the week that she found out. And we were riding in the back of the car, and she looks at me and she's like, "Why didn't anyone tell me?" And I was like, <laughs> "I don't know. Girl. I think I think they thought you were gonna get angry." And she's like, "What am I gonna say? I don't. I'm a really old woman. I don't know how things work anymore. <laughs> like I'm in a retirement home. Like." I don't I don't give a shit basically like it, yeah like she was like if he's doing fine why should I say he's not doing fine like who am I to grandmas just want us to be happy I mean Aww. grandmas yeah, like... just want us to be happy that's the first person you tell is grandma <laughs> So, I mean, I think what I would say is that this podcast is full of communication tips and tools to help you have these difficult conversations. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's that, this really heartwarming story going around Facebook about a, a non-binary model getting like an angry letter from a parent who's blaming them for turning their child queer. Uh, go on. If we all, if, if we only had that power. Serious. To turn people. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the and the, the the person's response is fabulous. It's all the sorts of tools that we're always talking about. Where they're like, "Oh, okay, like you want to talk about that? I like I'd love to be able to talk. I can talk to you about that. It's clear that you care very much about this person." And the person's like, "Yeah, of course I do. They're my daughter." And they're like, "Yeah, so you want to help them make like the healthy choice and not like damage their breasts, right?" And they're like, well, "Wait, what?" <laughs> it's somebody that was uh, promoting a binder, a binder, right? That was the advice yeah. they gave. When the person wrote them and said this, they were like, you should get them these bindings from these locations oh, right. that are safe Sorry, and non-damaging. I fucked your story up. No, no, it's know. fine. Yeah, but that, that's the context of the story. So it does look like that at first, but when I reread it and checked it, like I think it's actually just a, a model. And they were just giving advice like, oh, if they're going to do that, then you know, here are places that they can get the healthy right supplies from that won't hurt them. Yeah. I thought it was a model like selling a binder and they were like upset mm -hmm. that they were giving their daughter an avenue to do that. And she was like, but, you know, if you did it these ways, it's going to hurt her. They're definitely recommending other companies where the companies where you can buy it. They're not trying to sell anything. Oh, OK. But they were using that to make the person understand the point, which was they were like, if you choose not to support your child's choice and your child goes out and does other things like taping their breasts down or them. tying them down, they could cause permanent damage and you don't want them to cause permanent damage. Right. So you want to give them the healthy alternative that really helps them as a parent that cares about them very deeply. Yeah, I loved the talk through on that yeah mm -hmm. yeah and the person was like wait so wait how do i help keep them safe mm -hmm. and then by the end the parent was sort of on that page and really and thanking them yeah and thanking them and really that's part of what we we're always trying to say which is you know the, the people who are going to get the most angry at you are angry at you because they think you're hurting yourself in some way most of the time obviously there are some well, that's even right. I think I think that all the time, but there are people who for whom their deep-seated response to that form of harm is so draconic and damaging that it should not be engaged, if that makes sense. So like you do have people that disown their kids and never talk to them again, but they do that because somewhere they think that that will teach their like fix their kids, like that it's irresponsible then to accept their child and that maybe if they don't, the kid will eventually mend their ways and come back and be a good person, quote unquote, healthy person. Prodigal son. And I, you know, they're still, I think, doing it for the child. It's just that that response is horrible. But the motivation is, I think, the same. Mm -hmm. And so I think most of the time, the vast majority of the time with patience and perspective and such, you can people back to understanding and i think i've done that with even the harshest critics that i have had in my polyamorous journey eventually now again you have to have the time energy and desire to do that right you know and maybe you don't oh yeah i also very much enjoy not going to family functions with family members that i know are bigoted in some way <laughs> that is my personal choice <laughs> i think i went to a family function with some of my dad's family at some point and one of the people there was 
had recently changed churches so that they can continue to dislike gay people Mm -hmm. because their church had come out in favor of gay marriage and gay pastors and they were like not my church and moved to a whole different denomination wow which which killed me because my my granddad is a lutheran minute was a lutheran minister so like our family is like lutheran to the core you know and uh (laughs) my uncle was like not gonna be catholic now I gotta find a religion that still doesn't like gay people, and you're like, it was it was better to wow, to believe that, that. Yeah, it was that important <laughs> to you to give up your faith of like 20 generations. I mean, our name is German. Like we've been following Lutheranism since it came out in our family, and it was important <laughs> enough to you to, that since one issue out. was worth it. That one issue, yeah, was worth it to you. Like that's. I never talked to him again after that. I just never talked to him again. I. Took him yeah. off anything that I was connected to and refused to go to things that he was at because I was like, Dad, we're just going to fight. Like, I'm just going to fight with the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's nothing in my body that's going to be able to shut up and not have an altercation here. Uh, and I don't have enough emotional leverage. Like we talk about the emotional leverage like that, you know, in the story we just talked about, the, the woman's child had the emotional leverage. She was They were worried mm-hmm. about the health of that child. I don't think my uncle cared about me enough personally that I was going to be able to make that wedge connection in, in their life. And it was just not worth right. the, the level of energy there. So I just stopped engaging it entirely and was like, oh, I'm not going to things that they're at. And if they are, I'm not talking to them. Because at the time, Lissa was, I mean, obviously already out to me as bi. So he's sitting there talking about how horrible and monstrous gay people are. And I'm like, man, you're lucky my dad's here. I would punch you in the face. Mm. Like, <laughs> I was like, dad, I can't, you can't, you can't ask me to be in a room with him again. Right. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Gosh. And I mean, does your dad understand? Yeah, my dad understands. We've never, he hasn't, it's not been a big deal. You know, that was Good, the last man. time I did that, but that uncle has actually passed. So now it's not a problem that I have to. That's not a big deal at all now. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ways to handle that. You can get away from those sorts of people. You can, if they matter to you, you can help them understand eventually when you're ready and able and safe and have the energy and the space in your life for those conversations. I think that's really what it comes down to. Like Manny was saying, like, what if you don't want to? I think if you don't want to, you have to be honest and say that you also just don't want a real relationship with that person. Yeah. Or not that you don't want it, but it's it's not something you're, it's not in, it's not available to you for some reason. Right. And that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And you should not feel bad. Yeah, and you see that meme a lot, but it's a good meme. You should not feel bad for cutting out toxic family. Family is yes. not a pass to be monstrous to you. Right. Thank you. It is absolutely <laughs> not. I think I posted that recently. Family yeah, right? is not a hall pass to be cruel to someone. That was one of the weirdest things in my family is my mom loves family. Like my mom loves family. And she's like, oh, you got to <laughs> keep up with your family. You got to stay with your family. You got to hang out with your family. And I'm like, mom, my family is awful to us mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And they will not listen to me about it. They just go, well, we're family. So you're going to come back. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I've been fighting that same problem. And that was a lot of my mom and I's personal early fights that took a long time for us to resolve, which I've talked about before, where like, uh, there was a period of time where my my brother always wanted to bring these monstrously large dogs over to their house whenever we had a family get together. And I was <laughs> like, dogs. I don't, I don't want to come to the, the house. And it, again, it's not against anybody. I just, I don't want to be around these crazy dogs. Yeah. And that resolved because one of them actually attacked me. And now right, they don't right. bring the dogs around anymore because they attack me. Yeah. And I was like, I feel like that was a, I have a legitimate concern. Yeah, I don't get along with my sister. And my mom does this whole get over it. She's your sister. It's family. And I'm like, it's really not. Yeah. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's a great concept that I loved out of Confucianism. When I told you like my first philosophy book called The Rectification of Names. So Confucius's theory in The Rectification of Names is a thing is only what it is if it actually is the thing that you say it is. It's deep. So a sister is a person who loves you and takes care of you and works with you. And if the sister treats you like garbage, they're not a sister. Thank you. You don't know a person that treats you like garbage sisterly behavior because that's not a sister. I look at family the way I look at partners is I I want them to be family because they want to be, not Mm -hmm. because they have to be. Yeah. Not that there's some type of obligation to me in some way. I want them to be my family because they want to be my family. The idea of family is really weird to me is because part of it seems to also indicate that you don't have the obligation to treat people who aren't your family ethically. Hmm. It seems to be part of the the thing that's built into that construct. Like, I would be nice and help and deal with anyone as much as I am physically able, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. And given that level of response, my parents are like, well, but you owe more to your family. And I'm like, I can't, I can't yeah. give more. I'm already giving the maximum ethical, healthy space that I can give to people. So everyone is your family. 
<laughs> yeah, so the claim is either that I should give less to everybody else, i.e. treat them even below the sort of barrier of what would be ethical from my perspective, so that I have extra energy around to deal with the BS of family members for no apparent reason, or to put up with abusive family members when I don't have the energy right. for it. And like neither of those solutions works for me. Right. There was a New York Times article recently, I think, showcasing a survey that showed that most millennials prefer Friendsgiving mm -hmm. to Thanksgiving, which of uh, course we yeah. do. Yeah. People that we care about that care about us and treat us like decent right. uh, human what? beings instead of people that have to meet their expectations and whatever weird social requirements they have. The have-to family. Yeah. There's the want-to family and the have-to family. Yeah. yeah. Why would anybody prefer the... The other one. I mean, I think what ends up happening a lot in those contexts is you have someone like, so you're, for your mother's perspective, right? Both of you, her daughters, are her chosen family. She wouldn't use those words, but she, you know, she does love you both and you are her chosen family in addition. It's not like she hates your sister, right? I wish. No. <laughs> <laughs> the issue there is your mom wants Friendsgiving, but for your mom's Friendsgiving to feel complete, it requires mm -hmm. both of you. And so she's trying to find a structure that makes it basically ethical to ask you to be in this in space with somebody who harms you right because she doesn't know how to reconcile the fact that she wants something that's harmful to someone else right that's super selfless huh <laughs> <laughs> well but also she comes from a background you talk about the scripts you know especially in that age group the scripts are family 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 yeah. family is no matter what right and so they feel very justified making that claim and part of the reason for that is because that they came from a time when the only people whose opinions mattered were the parents mm -hmm. so if the only person in the room whose opinion matters is the oldest parent then of course family matters because they're all their kids that's hilarious and of course they want their kids to get along because that's that's the excuse like <laughs> your grandmother your grandmother if your grandmother was still alive if your gra if your yeah. grandmother she's rolling over in her grave mm -hmm. right right sure because like, because it, it really matters what your mother thinks about you right now <laughs> yeah seriously it's like when we talk about if a relationship, like a romantic relationship or friend relationship can be measured by how long it lasts. And of course mm -hmm. it cannot, right? But right. but there is a value in shared experience. We know that. I mean, there's, there's so much evidence that psychologically there's a bonding and a value in shared experience. We know that, you know that reminiscing on the past is a very positive human pastime. It's good for us. So it's not that there's no value to family because family are those people who are most likely to have been forced into those situations with you the maximum number of times. I spent more time with my brother than I have with anyone but like four other people mm -hmm. on the planet you know and so there's a value there that if you can find a healthy way to salvage it may be worth it to you and i think that sometimes that obscures the fact that it's not always salvageable so my question is but were you did you spend all that time with your brother because you were forced to or because he's somebody that you would have in your life if it were an option to you that was my dilemma and what I finally came to the realization is that my sister is not somebody that I would choose to have in my life. If she were not related to me, she's not someone that I would choose to be friends with or have in my life in any way. That's where I don't have any kind of guilt for not wanting to have a relationship. Oh, well, you definitely shouldn't have any guilt for that. There's nothing guilt worthy about that i was just saying that there's still a value in shared experience my brother and i had a very negative middle period and i think we've worked very hard on repairing our relationship or i have and he has as well i think partly for my mom because it makes her happy and that matters to me and because he's not harmful to me mm -hmm. anymore well and part of the repair work was i need you to do these things to not be harmful to me or i can't really be around you you know and given that those conditions are can be met, then there's a lot of shared experience that, you know, no one will ever know what it was like spending a month on the road with my parents as kids other than my brother. You know, no one will ever be able to reminisce and share that with me other than him. But is that important to you for someone else to know that? I think that has value to me. Well, like I said, there's lots of studies that show that shared experience is a bonding system, you know, that there's, there's something, there's value there. So like, you think about how many people... I mean, and obviously, I believe there's a lot of people in the world who are awesome that I can bond with, but the number of people that I will actually end up bonding with is relatively mm -hmm. low. Right. So to take a person that I have huge amounts of bonded time with and who for, you know, who does, for whatever reason, reciprocally wants to be in my life, 
And therefore, I do have some of the leverage to say, well, I want you in my life, you want me in your life, but I need you to work with me to do some things so that you're not hurting me. And if those things can then happen, then I think that's a healthy relationship. And again, that's a choice. I don't think you should feel like you have to do that. I was just saying that statistically, there's a value there. And if it isn't a value to you, or maybe when you look at that time you spent together, it was so painful that it wasn't bonding. In that kind of way, like you yeah. have shared experiences, but they're all terrible. Right, right. Then, you know, that's a different. Well, and that's kind of my point is like most most of my shared experiences, I would say 80 to 85 percent of the shared experiences I have with my sister were forced shared experiences mm-hmm. that weren't enjoyable. Sure. Can you talk about a little bit more about forced? I, I'm trying to clarify what you mean by that word, because I think of a lot of the because ex- she was my sister. So we had to be in the same car or we had to right. be in the same room or yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Sure. Whereas, again, if it was my choice, I wouldn't have been. So so under that definition, just for clarity, Christmas morning is one of those experiences, for instance, because that's where we sh- we do yes. that with our, our siblings. Yeah, I don't think that I would have been allowed to yeah, opt okay. out of Christmas at like 10. No. <laughs> sure, sure. You would not have been able to take your gifts yeah, or go yeah. to a friend's house <laughs> and open them with a friend's family. No, no, I agree. I was just clarifying that that was the context for forced as opposed to... So my family had, I would say, more explicit and less explicit forced interactions, like... My parents would later tell me that our yearly summer camping trips were designed to basically force my brother and I into a small enough space that we would bond again. Right. Again, forced (laughs) interaction. (laughs) But that was very different than family day, where family day was explicitly forced. Mm. So once every like week on Sunday, we're like, this is family day. You're not allowed to play with anybody else. You have to hang out with us. If you want to hang out with someone, you can hang out with your brother. You know, like that's a very explicit forcing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I wanted to go on the camping trips because camping trips were cool. And obviously we weren't going to get to bring other friends because who would pay for them and who's sending their kid away for a month on a camping trip, you know, like, right. (laughs) So it wasn't clearly explicit. It was more like, well, I wanted to go on this camping trip with my parents, which is cool. And now I'm basically all alone, but I have another kid who would play games with me. So that's fun. Let's go play tag. You know, and so we ended up doing a lot of shared adventures that were not as explicitly forced. It was more like we were in a context where there just wasn't anyone else to right. be around, which is which is different, I think, than like Christmas morning or family day or, or something like that, where like if you tried to go off, you would get yeah. in trouble. In theory, I could go around the campground and try and find other friends, like kids to hang out with. I would have done that. <laughs> But that's how much I didn't get along with my sister. Even even at such a young age, sure. we're just so different. Mm-hmm. Just everything about us is so different. Yeah, no, I feel that. We used to joke that my brother and I somehow got the opposite ends of the genome. Yeah. You know, in, in theory, it's totally possible that you could be a sibling and share not a single gene with a, with a, I a sibling. It. And that was that was sort of what I used to say. <laughs> I used to be like, we're, yeah. we're that set of siblings. <laughs> Yeah. So no, you don't owe that obligation. So again, that's a like a thing that I spent a lot of time with, which was basically like, is this a relationship that has enough inherent value to me that I will get it back? Do I like the person my brother has become enough that I would get it back? Because I, if my brother was still the person he was when he was a kid, there's no way. Yeah. You know, like the person that I felt tortured me, there's no way. But he's not that person. He's grown and gotten older and mellowed and Ugh. has a wider perspective of the world. My sister's <laughs> just gotten worse. Like... Okay, so see, yeah, then I would stay away from that. And like I, I, like I said, I've just recently made the decision that I'm not that I'm just removing myself from the situation. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm done fighting with everyone, and I'm just removing myself, remove myself and my children because I don't want to subject them Mm -hmm. to the the shit that I was subjected to growing up. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting the downfall from all of my relatives, and my mother has stopped talking to me, and like. It's, 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 yeah, it's, there's this whole backlash that's coming with it because of that thought process that you said that, that, um, Mm -hmm. that programming from that generation that you have, Mm -hmm. you have to be family and you have to be around each other and you have to just accept everything about them. And I, I just, I can't tolerate that anymore. And I won't because my children are starting to be hurt from situations sure. and things and you'd hurt me all day long and I'll tolerate it. But now you're hurting people that are even more important to me than I am. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and part of that idea comes out of, you know, look back, look back for generations and you needed to have some group of people that you could rely on, you know, no matter what to do things like get together and pull out your guns and defend your farms from people you didn't know. And I have that group of people. It's just not my family. Right. And back then, people were so isolated and so far away from each other, and there were so few people that having that built-in mechanism through your family, it was a very successful method of doing that. It became ingrained as a value. Mm -hmm. But now that we live in much larger societies with 
the amazingness of the internet. And vehicles and, yeah. You can have this incredible support system. I really think that the biggest change from your mother's generation to now is the speed of digital information. Mm -hmm. Because if tomorrow you fell on incredible hardship, even if it was a very distant, very spread family, could all throw money at you that Mm -hmm. you'd have within you know, 10 seconds. And we could all get in cars and planes and come down and help you. And I could order a pizza to be sent to your house because you can't get up to cook. You know, Mm -hmm. like all of these things were not even available a generation ago. So a generation ago, you know, if you fell down and got your leg broken and your family didn't care about you, you were just SOL, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that that's one of those things. And again, it goes back to like a lot of times things proxy, emotionally proxy for other constructs. So, like, your mother knows that in her mind, like, you're doing something dangerous and bad that hurts you and it hurts everybody. It weakens the family because where's their support structure and it weakens you because where's your support structure and she doesn't understand that there's people who are harming you inside of that structure and that there's this hidden abuse that's happening inside of that space that is damaging to you, is damaging to your children. And it isn't necessary. There's there's a, a much better system available to you. Yeah. That you don't need it. The problem is, though, that it's been communicated to her that damaging right. person, person's is there and it's a just get over it mm. sure well and that's not a surprising reaction we know that having your ideas and beliefs questioned triggers all the same neurochemical and releases as actual physical danger mm-hmm. so having your beliefs brought into question like and being like i think you're wrong triggers an emotional danger sense deep in your brain just like like if a wolf pack was hunting you and so people respond but that's why people respond to that sort of thing by digging in their heels and fighting back and creating even more ridiculous systems interesting the the key is to somehow find a way to short circuit that if if again if you have the energy and the time for mm-hmm. it so i don't know if you know if mandy has the energy and the time for been, it sounds like i've no. been fighting it for 30 years i'm done <laughs> <laughs> yeah same you know the story with them with that model they were able to short circuit that by going oh but you love and care about your kid and i can see that and that's wonderful yeah and that knocked that person out of that fight or flight response so they could have a discussion about what that meant to care about to their kid yeah and i've tried um, it and, and that doesn't come- work <laughs> sure it doesn't it does not always work it does yeah. not no system is going to always work but coming at people sideways like that is your best bet for making yeah. that connection that actually brings me to another type of lie that i wanted to ask you about mm-hmm is when we lie to children. Yeah. Is that ethical? I don't lie to children. Right. Well, I meant we as a they, <laughs> because I don't lie to my children either, which is one of the reasons that we have the falling out in my family. But sure. one of the things that happened was my mother lied to my children mm. to cover yeah. up that some, something that someone else did. She thought it would be best, of course, to not blame was this it? person for what they did and just tell mm-hmm. a cute little lie. Like a straight up semantic lie? Oh, yeah, like a straight up, this Whoa. person's doing this and the person Eek. was really doing something else. Uh. What she didn't know was I had already talked to all three of my children and they knew exactly what was going on. So then they saw her lie. Uh. Mm-hmm. So they just all looked at her like, did my grandmother just straight lie to me? Seriously? That's <laughs> awful. Yeah, and that's, and that's what the research says. The research says that when you lie to kids, they eventually notice that you are lying to them and then they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. And it also sets a precedent that it's them versus you. But there's right. this sort oh, of, huh. you're not on a team working with them. You are somehow trying to control them or it's like a, a game where they're trying to know what's really going on and you're trying to keep it from them. Right. Yeah, I think the only thing that I've ever lied to my kid about is Santa. But recently he asked me if he was real and I was like, nope, he's not. So he's yeah. old enough that I never kind of regret having done that. Anyway, So there's a way that I got around that. <laughs> and this may not be ethical either. <laughs> but... Um, I definitely told my kids about Santa Claus, but when they got old enough to really go, okay, mom, like there's no man in a suit with a furry beard. And I said, you know, (laughs) you're right because Santa Claus, Santa is not a person. He's a feeling and he's, he's a, he's a spirit within us that is this gift giving spirit. And once you, figure that out like you have at this age then that's when you become a santa as well and Mm -hmm. we do this thing where my kids become santas and they have to pick somebody that they feel needs a santa present so they pick somebody they buy them a gift they give them that gift anonymously they they're not allowed to take credit for it in any way Mm. and that person feels the spirit of Santa Claus and the spirit of Christmas. So that was kind of how sure. I got around. That's sweet. 
Yeah. Spiritual agnosticism is just truth. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what the spiritual world looks like. I like to talk about something similar, but I like to talk about the idea that humans make sense of our world through stories and archetypes. Yeah, and mythology. and Mm -hmm. Right. And that a lot of people believe that those archetypes either are directly correlated to some sort of spiritual beings or indirectly correlated to some sort of spiritual force. And that we have no evidence of whether that's true or not true, really. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being what feels right. And it does feel right to imbue those constructs with sentience and personality and direction. At least to me, it does. Right. And to say that to them is that's just the truth. And they can say, well, it doesn't feel right to me. And I can say, okay. Right. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah. So yeah, I agree. It was true because as I was Santa sure. for them growing up, it was because I felt that they needed that spirit of Christmas. That's what. Mm-hmm. That's why we do Santa, that right? That's why we we have this construct of Santa Claus and the gift giving, and it's the it's the spirit of Christmas. Yeah, right. And that's spreading that love through gifts, whether it be homemade or mm-hmm. from Neiman Marcus. Yeah, mm. but it's <laughs> right. I like that you guys got excited at the second half. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I explained <clears throat> to him is that yeah, I have been Santa. But it was because you needed a Santa at the time. And now you don't need a Santa anymore and you need to become a Santa. Yeah. I like that. It's like beautiful. Yeah. I, it's not my it's not my original idea. I read it somewhere and I just thought, <laughs> that is freaking awesome. <laughs> so. Yeah, you should not you should not lie to kids, is the short version. Yeah. Yeah. Again, unless it's for health and safety reasons. So if you live somewhere and there's lots of places where your identity, you know, whatever type of identity we're talking about, gender identity, sexual orientation, whatever, would put you and your family in physical danger, children are still going to tell people things. Mm-hmm. So if you want to tell them like, nope, that's not what we do, <laughs> because you have to, because it's a safety, you know, requirement. Right. Mm. I just, I, I always told my kids that's not something we talk about in mixed company. Yeah, I think I'm talking about more extreme conditions, potentially, Oh, like the areas in Africa where you will literally be executed for it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where like, okay, yeah, it, they're probably going to get through that without talking in mixed company, but not like guaranteed, right? Sorry, Mandy just showed her <laughs> privilege. <so. laughs> yeah, well, you know, and so I, I mean more like if you were in actual physical danger, where if it did slip out, you're just done. Yeah. Uh, one way or the other way, like thrown out of your house really badly disprivileged. Then, then again, that falls into that area where I think you probably might need to use a manipulation there to help your kids. But I do think you should definitely be on a plan to try and escape that space and still have a plan like when they're old enough, you know, like when you're old enough, I'm going to tell you and I'm going to say, you know, here's why I had to do that. I didn't like doing that. It's not good. I'm sorry. But it was better than the risk of the alternative, that sort of thing. And that goes back to like what you said before, um, you know, about if you have to manipulate your family in some way with words that you have a plan to not do it in the future, whether it's a yeah. long-term plan or a short-term sure. plan. Right. So you have to be able to take your circumstance into account to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Ethics is always this complicated. I mean, the gray area of ethics is always this complicated, it's complicated structure. But if you are in, you know, our primary listening audience, probably the vast majority of you are not in a situation where telling your children is the most dangerous thing you could do. And there are also people that are like in, say, custody battles where the other parent is, in a sense, potentially the enemy. Mm-hmm. In, in the way of getting the kid lose custody and kids are going to tell their parents things, you know, so you might not be able to tell your child your situation because they're going to tell their parent that situation and they're going to turn around and use that against you in court. And then that might not be what's best for the child. So I think there are good situations where enough situations where where those kind of manipulations to your children are are for their health and benefit. And you have to do that inside of the guardianship role that you're going to sign as a parent right? or that you have elected into as a parent. Again, I would definitely have a plan to get out of it. And I definitely have a plan to apologize and talk about it and share that information at some point, because I would want I would want that connection with my child to be as authentic as possible. Yeah. And I, and I think that at that point, you have to do that check as well. That ethical check. You always should. Whenever you're doing, whenever you realize Mm -hmm. you're going to manipulate something, you have to do that check and you have to weigh it really hard. And especially with kids, you should always weigh everything super hard with kids. Yeah, I was going to say, even especially when kids are involved. There should always be extra due diligence there. And to be honest, my son was pissed. when My middle son was pissed when he found out that there that mom was Santa Claus because I had been lying to him. (laughs) Uh And that's, he was like, you, you said we don't do that. Yeah. And 
now you I found out you've been lying to me for like my whole life. How old is he? Uh, he was 10. Oh, interesting. I'm doing the sort of the same as the story that you're talking about, or the, well, at least the version of it that I said, which is basically the same, but from the get-go. I'm not, I'm not doing mm-hmm. like a period of Santa into that construct. Okay. My kid's never going to think that he's getting gifts from a mythical being, other than as a mythical being that, whose spirit moves his family to give him gifts. Okay. That like, you know, in praise and honor of mythical beings, we mm-hmm. provide gifts to you and each other and, you know, enjoy this particularly special time together. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. But... But it's never going to think that Santa Claus is more than sort of a like a symbolic focus of that construct as opposed to a, an actual being. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> flesh, yeah. A flesh and blood member of the corporeal plane that lives in the <laughs> North Pole. Yeah. Also, hilariously, I can't even get him into like the smallest amount of Santa Claus. I keep getting him to watch Santa Claus movies and he's like, no. <laughs> Interesting. I'm like, look at this really cool Santa Claus movie. You want to watch it? No. This oh. is a Christmas movie. I'm out. Okay. <laughs> and see, and and when I explained it to him, the Santa Claus that you see is just a symbol of mm-hmm. that spirit. Right. So right. they were like, wait a minute. So you're telling us you lied to us our whole life. And I'm like, no, just misinterpreted what I was saying. <laughs> Well, I, I think their claim there is pretty good, though, right? I think their, yeah. their claim there is good. That you, in yeah. fact, were lying to them. And that, that created a, a rift that you had then had to fix. And that would be the yeah, reason why right. I wouldn't do that. And why I say yeah. that it's not a, a good practice, even when it seems like it's a fun... Like, oh, mythical creatures are fun to, to pretend mm-hmm. exist. Are they, though? Because then your kids learn not to really trust you about those sorts of things. And my kids are super logical. They're like, why would an Easter bunny leave eggs? <laughs> Easter bunnies don't lay eggs. Like, yeah. that's weird. Are they, like, stealing it's them from chickens? Symbolism. Like, what is that about? <laughs> they were just very... They were very, very concerned about about rabbit thieves. and It's, it's sexual <laughs> yeah. symbolism is what it is. <laughs> rabbit thieves, I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I told them that they're the eggs that give us blue deviled eggs. Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want green eggs in hand. Um... <laughs> All right, so let's just sort of take stock of where we are real quick. So we laid out the planes of ethical decision-making and noted that manipulations are always somewhere in the permissible space. Not always, I mean, with exception, like extreme exceptions, like life-threatening mm-hmm. exceptions. They're somewhere in the permissible space, but they're also somewhere in the, are they uh, more uh, personally desirable or personally undesirable in the way that you want to or think that... Because we remember... Uh, existentialism is all about the idea that your actions basically vote towards a human future Mm -hmm. so you know is that the kind of human future you want to vote for for everybody like uh, a family structure where everyone lies to each other or do you want to vote towards a human future where everyone's honest with each other and chooses to have family electively if they're healthy and can you imagine that if everyone did that like today it might sound bad for you individually but if everyone did that in only a couple of generations, you'd actually be able to have these kind of conversations. So when Mandy said yeah. to her mother, my sister is hurtful, Mandy's mother would actually go with her to her sister and say, hey, you're being hurtful. And you would be able to do that sort of transformative justice work. You could have an accountability pod if you even wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, like, yeah, you could do that work instead of Mandy's family not being able to hear that claim. Right, right. And that's what my hope is for my yeah. from for the next generation with for my kids and for their kids sure. is to not just have to put up with it because it's family to check yeah. it to to be able to have the conversations and I mean that's like calling you know, out any other bad behavior like they say like mm-hmm. you have to call out like people make sexist jokes you got to call them out right there yeah if yeah. your family's being you know behaving badly you don't go oh well it's family I guess I'll let it go yeah you know you got to call it out and so then we looked at the word manipulation because I think it's really hard to say to someone sometimes you should lie but I also think it's a more authentic word in the sense that it talks about what actually happens when you talk which is that you manipulate other people's mental space Mm -hmm. and if you're giving them the honest truth then you're letting them have consent and make decisions and if you're not then you're in some way manipulating them and sometimes you have to do that and I think that the word manipulate uh, manipulation it like you said it encompasses more things it encompasses those untruths and mm-hmm. those omitted right. truths, yeah. not just lies, but all those little bitty things that we go, nah, they're not really a lie. They right. are, in fact, a manipulation, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I like that language, because it avoids having to have that fight with people about what mm-hmm. we want to call a lie semantically. I don't care what you want to call a lie semantically. There's not an ethical it's difference a between a half-truth and a lie and anything else. They're all the same kind of thing. They're manipulation. Right. That said, we still would say if you have to use manipulations avoiding semantic lies is going to give you the best chance of rebuilding and being safe in the spaces that you're creating in the long run if you have to get back to it. Uh, It's not ideal, 
but it's certainly safer it's in, in our culture. So I don't, you have to take into account your cultural context and making a decision about which one of those makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But in the cultural mm-hmm. context, which I have experienced, avoiding direct semantic lies does somehow cut you some slack Yeah. yeah. when people find out. I'm not sure why. And check yourself, run an ethical inventory, like Michael said. Perfect. Anytime you <laughs> feel that you have to do a manipulation, you need to do an ethical inventory yeah. and basically double check that that manipulation is acceptable. And you should do that periodically once you've agreed to that as well, because you, you don't want to do is set up the manipulation and then just do it all the time out of habit for the rest of your life and never really look and see if it's still necessary. Mm-hmm. And you should, as much as possible, when you're doing that inventory, create a plan to leave that space unless there's some overwhelming factor, which again, is not a factor for most of our audience in their lifetime. For most of our audience, if you have 10 years to work on a plan, you can get yourself to a healthier space where you no longer have to make those choices. Right. Then we also talked about the specific context of kids, which I think was important because during the holiday season, especially, we have the question of Santa Claus and other mythical figures, which is a question about manipulations there. And then there's also a question about what do you tell them about your family? How do you tell them to behave with family? So there's a couple of subtopics that I want to hit real quick, but like we did talk about you should teach them and model for them not letting yourself be around toxic members of your family who harm yes. you mm-hmm. because they will repeat those behaviors and they'll think that that kind of abuse is acceptable both to do to other people and to have done to them. Right. That's so much more important to me for them to learn now and to continue throughout their life than it is for me to have a relationship with someone at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. It's just so important to me that I don't teach them that it's okay to stick around and let people treat you like that. Yeah. And by the way, while we're on holidays and sort of the thing that kid needs, just a quick non-exact topic PSA, kids don't owe anybody a hug. They don't owe anyone physical affection. They don't owe anyone positive, automatic positive reinforcement for their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Folks in the back hear that? Say it again, Michael. (laughs) Kids are living autonomous (laughs) beings who have all the same rights as adults as far as consent goes. The only thing that your guardianship gives you the right to do is help teach them what they need for their health and happiness. Yeah. So if you're forcing them to hug your grand their grandparents because it makes you feel better, but it harms them, that's not guardianship. That's abusive. Like mm-hmm. that's not okay. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> I mean, obviously, again, unless there's some harmful context I'm missing, like if they don't give your grandparents a hug, your guys are thrown out of the house that your grandparents pay for. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> so again, context matters, but for the most of us, that's not. Don't give grandma a hug, damn it. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of the same thing that I feel about with Santa Claus. I feel like, who is Santa Claus really for? Like, parents are like, oh, Santa Claus Seriously. is for my kids. It gives them a magical, wonderful time. I remember being a kid. I do not remember Santa Claus improving my life. I remember Santa mm-hmm. Claus being very confusing. I remember being afraid that if I told my parents that I didn't believe in Santa Claus, I would lose gifts because I would mm-hmm. they would stop giving me Santa Claus gifts. What I remember is that my parents enjoyed me believing in Santa Claus, that they took photos and sent them to their family. And look how cute he is. He believes in mythical beings. Mm -hmm. I remember when my mother told me that there was no Santa, I actually appreciated what I got for Christmas more because I knew that she made the effort to get exactly what I wanted rather than some mythical person that I didn't know. Well, and I remember Santa Claus being used against me sure. as a child. Yeah. Um, an elf on know, a shelf, a right? Yeah. Well, we didn't have that creepy elf. But <laughs> oh, creepy. So Santa, creepy. I mean, but Santa was a threat. Oh, if you do this, Santa's watching. You're not going to yep. be on his good uh, list. Yeah. That's know. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Santa was not your parents. So you weren't, you didn't have that trust that they would still take care of you, even if you made a mistake. So it was like, oh God, better behave well. Yeah. So for a lot of people, that's true. I don't think my parents did that. But for a lot of people, that's true. And I know that that's the, I know that a lot of people are also reclaiming Elf on a Shelf to make it more fun and less creepy. But the original (laughs) like written instructions that I read when I saw it were basically you say, here's the person reporting to Santa every day. So for the next 24 days, if you don't behave perfectly, yeah, they'll move it. So it's looking at you when you wake up and stuff like that. if you're not behaving right, then the elf will report to Santa. And so, you know, so the question is really, I think you should really think long and hard about who you think pretending Santa Claus is good for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time trying to remind my kid that monsters don't exist so that Mm -hmm. he feels safe in the dark. And I don't know how I'm going to do that when I'm also telling him that friggin' Santa Claus exists. (laughs) Right. Because like as a child, I remember thinking... Okay, so if I'm not good, if I'm if I don't behave, then this big hairy man's gonna break in my house. Mm-hmm. This is if I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> this big hairy man's gonna break in my house. But if I'm bad, we're cool. Like he's not coming. 
let me weigh this. Yeah. You know, That's funny. like I, I remember being scared that somebody was breaking in our house, like leaving presents or not. I yeah. didn't know what else the man was doing. Yeah, sure. I thought you had a yeah, beard so, fetish. So I think as an adult, <laughs> <laughs> I was a six year old. That is not where I got my beard fetish. <laughs> So my point, though, is I think that when people talk about this love of Santa Claus and how they're doing it for the kids, they're really doing it to create a space that will allow them to experience the wonder of believing in mythical mm-hmm. figures. Because yeah. as a parent, you don't have to experience the terrifying worry of they're spying on me. There's a man in my house. Yeah. There's, And I think if you think back, you will not remember loving the idea of Santa Claus. Even in the like, even the movie The Christmas Carol, not Christmas Carol. Sorry, even the movie A the Christmas, Christmas Story, Story like, Santa Claus is horrifying yeah. to the kids. The whole <laughs> point is that all the kids cry and freak out. And like every parent knows that. And yet it's still like, oh, Santa Claus is good for the kids. It's no, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you should really think about yeah. that. And and now that my kids know, they like Christmas so much more mm-hmm. now that that's not a thing. Yeah. And it's not hanging over them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I Not that I threatened them the way that my mother did, but... Because they understand the whole concept now, they they like it better. Yeah, I think that hit all the points that we wanted to hit. And I guess in the short version, if you are confused over how this ended up sort of being our, our holiday episode, it was it was because we tried to answer the question of what do you do if you can't tell your family the truth about being polyamorous? And we realized we'd never done any of the work to explain when and how you can lie and use manipulations. And that, that was going to require an entire episode to get through. Mm-hmm. So the short version for now is we gave you the toolkit to decide when you can use a manipulation, and then maybe next year we'll try and do the toolkit for using it on your family. How to do those if necessary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What kind of manipulations make sense? Mm. But I think yeah. I think most people know what kind of manipulations they need to do for themselves, like not telling yeah. people about their partners or going on vac- uh, a, a quote unquote like destination vacation for the holidays as a way to be with all your partners together instead yeah. of being with your family and not being able to bring your partners. I think I think a lot of people have pretty good handle on that. I think we can still visit that next year, I hope. But I think mm-hmm. this was really important. I think it was a really uh, meaningful set of topics. So I loved it. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy your holidays. I don't know if it matters to anyone else, but like about Christmas spirit. I'm just super excited that I did a holiday episode, even if it's sort of barely a holiday episode. <laughs> I don't want to miss the holidays and not put out an episode that's holiday-themed-ish every year. Yes. So everybody. Okay, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You guys have a great holiday, and I hope that ones past were amazing as well. Happy holiday. We wish you the best time with all of your chosen family and all of the family that you love and that supports you. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye.